All right, you guys ready to jump in? Look to your neighbors, say, get ready to jump in. <laughs> All right, all right. So uh, I just want to give a preface before we jump in. Uh, you know, as a church, if you guys would have, have been with us for a while, you know, I really sense, even just me and my wife, that we are really transitioning into a new season as a body. And uh, I feel like the Lord has really established us as a people. We've established community. We've established, you know, we're starting outreach, which is amazing. The Lord has really set, I think, such a beautiful, healthy foundation of what church is supposed to look like and function. And I just feel like this, this season that we're entering as a church, we're, we're entering into a deeper place of maturity of actually knowing Jesus. And I think uh, especially in spirit-filled cultures, right? We have all these different language for things that sound spiritual, but at the end of the day, it's just Jesus. <laughs> at the end of the day, it's just the person of Jesus. And so uh, we're starting this series, but I really felt from the Lord, for us to talk about the presence of Jesus or talk about the presence of God, we have to talk about the person of the presence, before we talk about being and building and creating a culture and a people around the presence of God, we, we have to understand, we have to know the person of the presence. Because at the end of the day, we, we don't want just a cool spiritual encounter. We want Jesus. Are we saying that? We declared that at the end, that I want Jesus. Take the world and give me him. This is, this is the heart cry of the church. And I feel like the, the church has gone through a purification it's gone through a season of refinement where, where all of the stubble and all of the hay and all these things that we've built on a foundation is just fading away. And we're going to really see if there's actually gold left. If our foundation was actually built on him or not. I love in 1 Corinthians, it says this, 1 Corinthians 3.11, for no one can lay any foundation. Stop right there. No one can lay any foundation, no pastor, right, no apostle, no eldership. No one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid. Jesus said, I will build my what? My church. And the gates of hell will not prevail over it. If he is going to build the church, then he is the foundation. So it says, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. And so my desire just today, just to, to get you guys ready, is my desire is that you would leave this place longing for Jesus more than you ever did coming in. And I know it's like, it's this thing, especially if you grew up in church and you're around Christian culture, if you go to Liberty, right, you hear Jesus, Jesus 24-7, it's very easy for that to just get watered down <laughs> or to feel like it's just a default. You know what I'm saying? But there's something significant in the book of Revelation, why for eternity they can't stop seeing him. They can't stop saying how worthy he is. They never get bored. How? How can, can and for all eternity, they're, they're literally in complete proximity with the Lamb of God on the throne. They're in complete proximity, but they can't stop. Worthy, worthy, holy, holy. We give you all the honor and glory and praise and thanks and wealth. That's all yours. 
that this is, I believe, the call of the church when Jesus says, pray this prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in what? In heaven. That I think there's a paradigm shift in the church that needs to happen because we, we talk about on earth as it is in heaven, right? We just hang the beautiful banner in our building next door in Lynchburg as it is in heaven, right? That's what we long for. But when we think of that, like, what do you actually think about when we say that? On earth as it is in heaven. What does that actually mean? What does it actually mean for, for heaven to come to earth? Does that just mean your life's easier, right? You don't have any problems. Does that just mean that, you know, um, you just feel tingles on your arms and worship is passionate? Like, what does that actually mean for, for heaven to come to earth? Do you know that heaven without Jesus is not heaven? <laughs> that heaven without the presence of God is not heaven. And so when we say on earth as it is in heaven, we're saying, Jesus, we need you to be at the center of everything that we do. I love this verse in Revelation 21 to 23. It says this. This is speaking about when, when Jesus comes to make all things new and heaven and earth become married. And he says this. And the city, can we pull this verse up? We have this. This is all the way to the end. I'm skipping around my notes. Just fine. You guys okay with that? All right. Revelation 21 to 23, this is the last, last verse actually. But it says this, And the city has no need of sun or moon, for the glory of God illuminates the city and the Lamb is its light. It's 23, if you guys want to go there. Revelation 21, 23. And the city has no need for sun or moon, for the glory of God illuminates the city and the Lamb is its light. That's how central <laughs> the Lamb, Jesus, actually is in heaven. That you don't even need gravity anymore. You don't even need the sun anymore. You don't even need the moon anymore. You don't even need oxygen because in him and through him, right, everything has its being. And this is what we're pressing into, guys, as a church, as a people. Even if you're visiting, we hope that you catch something and go back to wherever you're at and bring it with you, is that Jesus has to be central. Like, not, not an idea of Jesus, not, you know, hippie Jesus, but the Jesus who is coming back with a sword in his mouth that's actually going to come and judge the earth. All right, start here. That when we talk about the word presence, I want to give us some, some definition. The word presence literally translates to face. Say face. The presence means face. In Genesis, when it says that they hid from the presence of God, right, Adam and Eve, it says that they hid from his face. The word presence can also be interchanged with the word proximity. And so when we say we want a house for his presence, we're not saying we just want a house for goosebumps, <laughs> right? That's not it. We're saying we want a house that is in proximity to the Lamb. We want a house that is, is so near and close to Jesus that if Jesus isn't moving, we're not going to be there. Guys, if Jesus isn't in the church, it's not a church. Uh-oh. 
Another way to define it is two words, relational nearness. That when we talk about the presence of God, it's living in a place of relational nearness with Jesus. I love this quote. It says that the Lord doesn't relate to this world because he lacks something within himself. God doesn't want you to experience his presence. He doesn't want to dwell with you because he's insecure. He doesn't want to dwell with you and, and meet with you because he, he wants to fill his ego. No, the reason that he draws near to us is because it comes out of the abundance of who he is. That there is a big difference, and we have to understand this, a big difference between God's omnipresence, which we believe, and God's abiding or manifest presence. Let me explain this. There's a big difference between saying God is everywhere, which we believe, versus saying God is here, <laughs> right? And you know what I'm talking about. You've been in places, you've been in churches where you're like, if the Holy Spirit left three years ago, no one would have known. You know what I'm saying? Now, this is real. There's, there's something very different of knowing the omnipresence, neither height nor depth. Nothing can separate you from God 100% if you received him. But there's something about God's manifest presence that changes everything. I heard a pastor say this that was just so, so crucial in my understanding of God's presence. He said this, that, that the God who dwells everywhere longs to dwell somewhere. In the garden, God dwelled somewhere. In the tabernacle, God dwelled somewhere. In the temple, God dwelled somewhere. In its greatest fulfillment, Jesus, God's presence dwelled among us. In Pentecost, God's spirit filled his people and now he lives within us and we have full access to his presence. But even scripture is more concerned with his presence being made manifest in relationship and redemption. God, God doesn't just want us all to catch on to the fact that God is everywhere, which he is, but even in scripture, we see that he is more concerned with his presence being made manifest in relationship and redemption. That you, did you know that the biblical narrative starts with man and woman dwelling face to face with God, and it ends that way? Scripture starts and ends with man dwelling with God. This is God's desire. This is God's design. You know, God's design reveals God's desire. God's desire reveals his will. That God's will is that we would dwell amongst him, that he would dwell amongst us. And if this sounds weird to you, our heart, and I want you to catch this, our heart is if we can have as much of Jesus as we can on this earth, I want it. If I can have as much of Jesus in my marriage, in my homes, in my ministry, in my, my children, if I can have as much of Jesus' presence and nearness and intimacy and face, I want as much as I can while I'm here on earth. I gave this picture before. Jesus says this, I love this.
John 17, verse 3. He says, now this is eternal life. That they what? Know you. The only true God in Jesus Christ whom you sent. That eternal life isn't a destination. It's a person. That this is eternal life. This is when real life begins, guys. This is, this is when you stop dying. <laughs> that we think that we're born alive, and then we die, and then we become alive again. But we're actually born dead. All have fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're actually born dead, and then we meet Jesus, and then we're alive forever. And so if you can have as much as Jesus, the moment you what, you know him, why not start now? Why waste a second? That I don't want to go to eternity or go into heaven and see Jesus and be like, man, I wasted 70 years of my life just studying about you. When I actually could have known you? And we love theology and we love doctrine and we need that. And that's foundational. It's foundational to the church. But even in Acts, the church was centered around Jesus. Why were they praying so much? Because Jesus was there. Why were they worshiping so much? Why, why did the spirit fall in the room? Because Jesus was there. Jesus was central. And back to what I said, if Jesus is not at the center, it's not church. It might be a Bible study. <laughs> might be a worship concert, yeah. But it's not church. Because he says that I am the head of my body. If the head isn't there, then it's not the church. You guys okay? All right, let's go back to Jesus. So the story starts with man and woman dwelling face to face with God. Genesis 3.8, after the fall happened, it says that they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden. This is how intimate Intangible, God designed humanity to know him. That he walked in the garden in the cool of the day with Adam and his wife, hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. And so what did sin do? It severed our ability to live in his presence. Not because sin entered the picture, we have, have the inability to stand in the presence of a holy God. Right, Romans 5.12 says, when Adam's sin, sin entered the world, Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. Because of one man's sin and one man's disobedience, right? Dis disobedience means to disengage. That when they ate of the fruit, they gave into the temptation of the serpent, they disengaged. They said, I'm going to choose my way. Get tracking. 
I'm going to choose what I think is right. And as a result, they severed God's access for themselves to God's presence. And because of sin, now it spread. You can even read right after, like Cain and Abel. It didn't take long, right, <laughs> for, fit, for sin to start spreading. And now we're born in an environment of sin. But this is, this is such a powerful thing. I want you guys to see this. Revelation 13, verse 8. It says this, the lamb was slain before the foundations of the earth. No one got that. The lamb was slain, who was slaughtered before the world was made. What does this mean? Before the fall, there was already redemption. Before the fall, God already had the solution. I don't know, that's pretty profound to me. That the presence of God is the central goal in God's redemptive mission to bring man back to the garden, to live and dwell with him. And so when Jesus shows up in the scene, right, Matthew 1, 23, an angel speaks to Mary and says, your son will be called Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. What, is that, what does that remind you of? The garden. God with us. Not God at a distance. Not God separated from us because of our sin, but now God among us. That the presence of God finds its greatest expression in Jesus. That Jesus in John 2, 19 even says, he says, destroy this temple, speaking about himself, and in three days I will raise it up again. All the Jews started freaking out. They're like, this guy's about to destroy our temple? What in the world? But he's referring to himself, which obviously we know this, so we're used to this. But nobody at that time was saying, I'm a temple, right? That was like borderline blasphemous. It made no sense. Why are you the temple? You're a sinful human being. But he says, now I am the temple which is going to be destroyed, and in three days, the resurrection, I'll raise it up again. That the temple was the place, guys, where God met with men. That Jesus is the meeting place between God and man. That no one can come to the Father but by him. And so Jesus, the Son of God, came to earth to die in our place because he lived a life without sin. And only he was qualified to pay for our sins. That God would not be just if he just swept sin under the rug. He wouldn't be just. That in his justice, he says, because there is sin, there needs to be a payment. That's God's justice. There needs to be a payment for this sin. Something needs to repair this tether that was severed between me and humanity. 
So we see God makes a covenant with Israel that I will be your God and you will be my people and I will make you a kingdom of priests. I will make you people of my presence. That's what priests were. They would mediate God's presence to his people. God's desire for Israel was that they would continue the mission that he gave Adam and Eve, which was to take dominion on the earth. That as they took dominion, the garden's borders would spread, right? The presence would spread on the earth. And so that was God's desire for his people. His tracking. Okay, but obviously we see it doesn't work out super well. God gives them laws. Hey, let me, let me help narrow down <laughs> what it looks like to walk with me. They keep sinning. They keep disobeying. They keep making up their own way because man in your own strength cannot be made right with God. God's standard is way too holy and way too just and, and, and way too righteous for us to just fix ourselves. So here you go, God, I fixed the problem. That was created by generations and generations and generations of sin. I'm going to fix the problem. No, it doesn't work like that. I'm preaching the gospel. Is that okay? All right. So when Jesus shows up on the scene, the greatest expression of God's presence on earth, walking among sinners, walking among men, revealing what God is actually like. He says, when you see me, you see what? The Father. That I, Jesus, am the perfect representation of what God is actually like. Why you keep sinning is because you don't know what God is actually like. If you guys know the whole Jewish sacrificial system, God said, that the life is in blood, okay? Stick with me. This is weird, but stick with me. And he, he gave them this practice to sacrifice animals, right, as payment for their sins. And what this was a picture for was all alluding to Jesus' ultimate arrival, okay? The Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. The New Testament is the Old Testament revealed, all right? Okay. And so when Jesus comes, John the Baptist, his cousin, looks at him and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Everyone knew what he was saying. That in the temple, in the tabernacle, that priest day and night, I want you to think about this, day and night had to slaughter a lamb for penance for their sins and the people's sins. So every day, they're bloody, right? They're having to take this lamb. It's not a fun process. But it's reminding them of the weight. Pay attention. It's reminding them of the weight of their sin, that it costs life. All right. So Jesus shows up. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, it says this, For God made Christ who never sinned, that God's standard for holiness is perfection, which none of us can reach on our own. For God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sins that we can be made right with God through Christ. That he became the sacrifice, the just payment for our sin. And the beautiful thing is that he didn't just atone for our sin. He defeated it. Let me say that again. He didn't just cover your sin and make the payment due for what you owed. He also defeated Sin and death. 
and the devil. That in Genesis 3.15, can we go there? You guys know this verse? Genesis 3.15, when Adam and Eve sin, God speaks to the serpent. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring. What's the serpent's offspring? Death, sin, evil, destruction, chaos, and hers. And he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. From the moment right after God prophesied that Jesus would hang on a cross and die, his, his heel would be stricken, but your head will be crushed. All right. Hebrews 10, 19 to 22, let's read this. So good. It says this, and so dear brothers and sisters, we can what? Boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened a new, say new, and life-giving way through the curtain that is his flesh into the most holy place. And the tabernacle, the temple, the most holy place was where God's presence dwelt. And since we have a great high priest who rules over God's house, amen, let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trusting him. For our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean and our bodies have been washed with pure water. He didn't only purchase and atone and defeat death, but he now made you holy so you can stand in his presence. Amen. And because of what Jesus accomplished, access to his presence has been restored. Jesus said that God's presence would come to dwell in and among his followers so that they could become just like the tabernacle, living, breathing, walking temples, right? Dwelling places. The promise comes true and the Holy Spirit comes to dwell among the first believers during Pentecost and now as us, in us, as temples of the Holy Spirit. Spence, could you come up? Maybe play keys and close. It's gonna read a bunch of scriptures, is that fine? Colossians 1, 19, 22 says this, For God in all of his fullness was pleased to live in Christ, and through him God reconciled. He made everything right in himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. This includes you who were once far away from God, who was once far away from God, all of us. You were his enemies separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. Even your thoughts. But now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ 
in his physical body. As a result, he has brought you into his own presence and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. Guys, this is why he is worthy. This is why he is Lord. This is why he is king. This is why he is savior, that no one else could have done this. That none of your addictions could save you. That Jesus' name, I want you to hear this, his name literally means salvation. Right, the word in Greek, sozo, physical, mental, emotional, spiritual, salvation. That salvation isn't a place, it's a person. Let's say that again. Salvation isn't a place, it's a person. And so when Jesus becomes real amongst us, when, when the omnipresence becomes real and he starts to show up in a room, so does salvation. <laughs> and I love this. Revelation 21, verse 3. Remember, the story ends, begins and ends with man and woman dwelling face to face with God. It says this, I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. The guys, it all starts and all ends in his presence. stand guys it's all about Jesus that's it this is the beautiful picture I want you to see this you are right here okay you're right here God is over here that there is this this gap of separation between you and God. Your sin has created a gap of separation between you and God. And your whole life without Jesus, you're, you're, you're trying to find satisfaction, which is only God. So you're doing things to try to get there, but nothing you do is actually going to get you there. You start entering relationships, hoping it's going to get you there, but it's not going to get you there. You think your finances and, and your notoriety and your platforms is going to get you there, but it's not going to get you there. That that gap is way too big. That valley is way too big. What Jesus did is he stepped in the middle of the gap with his arms stretched. He became the bridge. He says, there's nothing in your power, in your strength, there's nothing that you can do to make you more righteous or less righteous. So I'm going to step in, and he who knew no sin became our sin. He stepped into the middle. He hung on a cross. He became our sin. How did he become sin if he was sinless? He received your sin. The verse continues, so that we would become the righteousness of God. How do you become righteous with God? 
you receive. You receive. So I'm just going to make space to respond to this.